Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space podcast. I'm your host, Mark Shapiro. Before we get to today's episode, a thank you to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode. Creighton University believes in equipping physicians for success in the exam room, the operating room, and the boardroom. If you want to increase your business acumen, deepen your leadership knowledge, and earn your seat at the table, Creighton's healthcare executive education is for you. Specifically tailored to busy physicians, our hybrid programs blend the richness of on-campus residencies with the flexibility of online learning. Earn a Creighton University Executive MBA degree in 18 months or complete the non-degree Executive Fellowship in six months. Visit www.creighton.edu forward slash C-H-E-E to learn more. My guest in this episode of Explore the Space podcast is Dr. Monica Verduzco-Gutierrez. Dr. Verduzco-Gutierrez is a physical medicine and rehabilitation specialist, and she is a professor and the chair of rehabilitation medicine at the University of Texas Health, San Antonio. And she is an international expert on the long COVID syndrome. She joins the podcast to discuss the overwhelming numbers of people who are presenting with long COVID and the need for rapid adjustment and adaptation to take care of all of these people and the challenges that this is putting before her and her colleagues, as well as the incredible opportunities that are there as well. She's an amazing person to speak with. She is approaching a massive challenge with a sense of calm and a sense of vision that I find, quite frankly, just absolutely inspiring. I think you're going to absolutely love listening to her. Before we get to the conversation, an invitation to check out the entire archive of Explore the Space podcast at www.explorethespaceshow.com. You can subscribe to Explore the Space wherever you like to download your shows. Please do leave us a rating and a review. You can find me on Twitter at ETS Show, Instagram at Explore the Space Show, and you can email me, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. Also, check out the Explore the Space merchandise store. It is open, www.explorethespaceshow.com forward slash merch. It is fantastic. I hope you enjoy taking a look around in there. I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation that we have for you today. So without further ado, Dr. Monica Verduzco Gutierrez. Monica, welcome to Explore the Space podcast. I'm delighted you're here. Thanks for having me. I'm very honored to be on the show. You're one of my oldest med Twitter friends. We've been med Twitter pals for, it's got to be like three or four years now. I know, for sure. Oh, oh, geez. (laughs) How many many miles have you run in the last four years? Oof, a lot. A lot. Because even then the last year, I haven't run many, but it was still like 1,500 miles. And that was the lowest in the last four years that I had run. Like, it's probably, yeah. How rigorous are you at keeping track of your mileage? Like, do you track it down to the mile or do you say, I'm going to go for a run? No, I track it to the mile for the most part. I'm like, okay, I have my Garmin watch and I'm going and I'm I have different types of runs depending on what I'm going to do. You know, there's the five mile loop. There's the six mile loop. There's the, the loop with the hills. There's the small loop with the track. You know, there's just different workouts that I do. What's the what's in your ears? Is it quiet? Is it music? Is it podcasts? Is it a mix? It's usually a person. So before when I was in Houston, I was always running with someone, meaning like I really like to run with someone. 
Okay. And I used to belong to a big running community. And then I moved here and I have one, a couple of runner, running friends, but just there isn't as much big running crowds because of COVID and haven't found kind of the same running community, though I have some, you know, two running friends. And if I don't have someone to run with, then occasionally my husband will go out with me to run. Okay. And then otherwise, um, then I'll listen. Sometimes I'll listen to something and sometimes I won't. But podcasts will, podcasts or music. All right. You can say no to this question. It will not hurt my feelings. But has Explore the Space ever gone on a run with you? Oh, yeah, for sure it has. That's I awesome. mean, I've even, totally um, cool. I will tell you, the, the Med Lasso ones, I didn't watch the much of the series, hardly any. Yeah. Yeah. And so a lot of it was over my head. But I okay. did listen that's to those episodes still. All that's right. fabulous. Oh, that's that's I'm so happy. That's great. Do you when you're running with people and we're going to get to other stuff, but I am really fascinated by this. And we've done a lot of content around running on Explore the Space and the mindset of just being out there on the road or on the dirt or on the trail or whatever. Is the is the companionship part of it? What's important? Is it the conversations that are happening? Is it the conversations that happen when you're getting tired? What is it about having people at your shoulder while running that's so important for you? I think it's both, you know, it gets you out, especially when it's early in the morning and it's been a bad day. You know, you're, we're tired, we're overworked. So it's like, I'm never going to skip out if I have to mi- meet someone. I mean, usually okay. I'm not a skip out kind of person anyways, but I may decide yeah. instead, like, I'm just going to stay indoors and do a Peloton bike ride. Nothing and, wrong with you know, a Peloton bike, man. I mean, yeah, it's over my right, there's nothing there wrong. It. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's great to do that. But, um, but there was a meme I saw yesterday. It was like, not a funny meme. It was a serious meme. It was like running giving me many things. Uh, but the greatest gift has been the people that it's brought into my life. Mm, you just end nice. up spending so much time with those people, especially yeah. when training for marathons and having run several marathons and several marathons with um, some of the same friends. And you really uh, get to know them and uh, build good friendships that way. That's so great. I ran one marathon. I'm I'm nowhere close to your level of running, but I do enjoy it. I ran one marathon and the guy who it was a group of us ran it together. It was really fun. We all trained in different parts of California, but we met for this thing in San Diego. But the guy who ran with me, he had done the bad water and I'd been on his crew. And so he's a very, very good runner, much more fit than I. So he stayed in front of me and he filmed it. And so he created this really cool video of me and my buddies doing this marathon together, put music to it, haven't seen him for a long time. We worked together in San Diego, but like we're bonded forever by that. Like what a nice thing to do for someone else, right? He's this fabulous runner, takes the whole day, because we were so, I mean, I was so slow. I still haven't finished the damn thing and it was 10 years ago. But what I really like hearing you say that it's, you create this community around it because now it makes me actually miss running. That was a really, really cool thing to have happen. And I see you post it on your social media all the time, you and your pals getting after it on the track or on the road or whatever. And it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's just something that, you know, I've loved the people that it's put in my life and what it's done. I mean, even beyond my health, just helping my mental health and everything else. Right. It is an interesting juxtaposition now that I think of it. And I honestly didn't think of this beforehand. The act and the importance of you engaging in this really difficult physical activity, right? I mean, if I was to run with you, there'd be no conversation because I'd be just gasping for breath and you'd drop me after a mile. And that's awesome. It'd be fine. We just meet later for coffee because I could not keep up with you. 
But this idea of physical activity being such a critical underpinning of your life, and then when you're done and you shower and you go to work, your work is with people who are in various stages of recovery from something that's keeping them from being able to be fully active in their life. Mm-hmm. Is that is that sort of juxtaposition? Is that a is that sort of comparison and um, skill set? Is that a big driver of the work that you do professionally? So it is, but it it crosses over. So it's so great that you said that because actually, the reason I started running marathons was being inspired by my patients, and you know wow. I was. It was like move for those who can't was kind of the hashtag I used at that time. So it was, uh-huh. you know, in physical medicine and rehabilitation, especially I take care of more doing brain injury and neurorehabilitation patients who are maybe more catastrophically impacted. So they had they have a brain injury, they have MS, they have a stroke, locked in syndrome. And before this, they were doing things like running marathons and then they had this event and it was taken away from them. So part of me doing marathons was doing it for my patients. Interesting. Do you talk about it with them or with their families? Is it, is it a subject where you try to be transparent around what you're doing before work or after work? And then when yeah. you're there with them. Yeah. Everyone kind of knows that I'm a runner and I enjoy running and, you know, we chat about it and yeah, some will talk about, you know, which marathons they've run, which one I've run and, I want to spend a little bit of time with what you actually do do for work, right? Explore the space. This is not a clinically driven podcast. We don't really do didactics here, but you're in a really important profession. I think now more so than ever because of what we were learning about COVID and long COVID syndromes and the myriad effects that it has on the human body, but also just like you described, right? People who suffer brain injuries, people who suffer injuries at work and are are trying to recover. You do physical medicine and rehabilitation. I think. And I tell me if I'm wrong, I think, and my impression, and this is my own bias, I suppose, is that it's a very poorly understood profession. And that I think we have an opportunity for us as healthcare professionals, but also for the public at large to get a better understanding of what PMNR is and kind of how it intersects and how people can even access it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I love to talk about my specialty. So good. And, and this is one thing that I didn't know about PM&R before I went into medical school. So, you know, thankfully we had PM&R at Baylor where we went to med school. That's right. That was the first exposure I ever had to it. I grew, I'm I'm the son of a physician. I grew up steeped in healthcare. Never heard of it until I got to medical school. Yeah. I thought I was going to be a pediatrician because that's kind of what I had seen and what I'd known and uh, was introduced to it in medical school, actually in a pre-med elective that was called sports medicine. Because was, oh yeah, that's cool. I'm into sports medicine. And the PM&R department was the one who put on that preclinical elective. So it was my first introduction to, okay, here are some physicians that are able to care for, for athletes non-surgically. So they're, you know, essential experts, physicians, you know, some people are like, are you a therapist? No, I'm not a therapist. I'm a, you know, I went to medical school there, you know, four years of med school, four years of residency and with non-surgical treatments for different conditions, whether that be, you know, sports med, musculoskeletal things, or then the rehabilitation part, which is sometimes treating the patients who have more um, needs like spinal cord injury, brain injury, et cetera. So it's really, they say it, it's the best case 
kept secret in medicine because I think, you know, there's still a lot of practice opportunities for people in PM&R. And we just, if you meet one PM&R, you meet one PM&R because a lot of our practices are very different in the things that we do. That's interesting. For those who are learning about it for the first time, what would you say is the biggest misconception about physical medicine and rehabilitation? That it stands for plenty of money and relaxation. <laughs> have you ever heard of that? I, was like, I have not. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, no, that's not what it stands for. If you've heard that. But, you've been misinformed. Um, yeah, you're misinformed. But uh, one, another thing people think PM, when they write, you know, back in the day when we wrote consults out on paper and it wasn't in the computer, that I'd see a lot of PM and then the letter N and R because then they didn't know that it was an ampersand and not an N. Not only have I seen that, I've done it. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, right. Yeah. I just say maybe they're asking for physical medicine and neuro rehabilitation. <laughs> you're just being really specific. All right. Right. I, I- I think at that point, it was like just mimicry of what my resident was doing. And I was just, I thought I was doing it right. But I guess the reason that I'm asking these things is when we have opportunities to kind of understand things better and to get better in our profession, there are definitely times where if I feel like I'm already expected to know something, I am going to be uncomfortable asking. It's on me. I don't think I'm alone in feeling that way. But that's why I think it's great that you're here. And that you can answer these questions so clearly because then people who may be like, I don't really know what PMNR is. They don't have it where I am. I don't see it very often or I see it on Twitter. Gosh, it looks really cool that we can, again, just sort of demystify it a little bit. If someone is in a region where they don't sort of, if they go on Google and they look for, okay, who's the physical medicine and rehabilitation specialist and there isn't one where they live or nearby, what are sort of specialties professions that would align nicely with it so if someone feels like this is something that i need or something that i want to refer people to what are the kind of adjacent places that people can land if they can't get to you specifically or your practice specifically right so like i said since it's such a diverse field that's really different what people do so uh, in our training we do also we had to do a lot of electromyography emgs so we have to do 200 plus EMGs in residency. A lot of people wow. get board certification in EMG. Yeah, neurology doesn't even need to hit those numbers. We have to hit more numbers than neurologists do. But so, for example, neurologists also do EMG tests. So that's an example. Um, we have some of us have fellowships in brain injury medicine and sub. Uh, subspecialties in brain injury medicine like myself and that's probably closest to what some some neurologists do but maybe the neurologists will do the more of the diagnosis and we're treating them for long term i do a lot of spasticity management which is injecting usually botulinum toxins into patients who have spasticity and the movement disorder specialists will do that as well For my friends who do more musculoskeletal medicine, some of them work in practices with orthopedic surgeons because orthopedic surgeons want to surgery, right? And they don't want to spend their time working up someone's knee pain and doing a steroid knee injection. They let the physiatrist do that thing and then send them to the surgeon once they've had all their 
you know, therapy and synvisc injections, et cetera. And then when they need the knee replacement, then send to the surgeon. So a lot of times surgeons and physiatrists will work together. Um, some PM&R doctors are also do specialty in spine and spine, act, uh, those types of t- injections. So occasionally a pain anesthesia person may do those similar injections, or they'll work in a spine center again with neurosurgeons and orthopedic surgeons doing the non-surgical spine care. So you are, for those who want to enter the specialty, you need to be ready, able, ready, able, and willing to interact with the whole variety of providers. You are not going to be doing this in a vacuum. That's what I'm hearing from you for sure. Right. Exactly. It overlaps with everything. We have, you know, we see sometimes patients in the acute hospital, some acute hospitals have it, and we'll do consults on patients who have been in the ICU and have post-intensive care syndrome or once after major trauma and accidents and, um, and follow them through sometimes into inpatient rehab. Some physiatrists go into skilled nursing facilities and then some have outpatient practices. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of, we're along the continuum of care and we're really good at one thing that makes PM&R great is multidisciplinary teams because that's part of the focus of our specialty is there's only so much I can do, but I need you to work with physical therapy. I need you to work with occupational therapy, speech therapy. I need the social worker to be involved. I need the patient and their family to be involved. It's teamwork. When you're on that team doing such high stakes work, what is the most important communication tool that you use to keep the team moving forward, to keep the patient, you know, goal oriented. What is the communication tool that leaps to mind that you reach for first? So in inpatient rehab, you do have to have multidisciplinary rounds. And so there's always just, it's just face-to-face communication that's in an inpatient rehab setting. It's different in outpatient, you know, there's messages that you can send emails, messages through the EMR, instead of calls, good old text messages, you know, Sometimes yeah. I'll just say, send the list with the patient of the muscles you think are the most spastic so I can consider those when I'm doing injections on the patient type of thing. Interesting. And then when you're doing this, you're working with medical students, residents, and fellows now in your practice, right? Yes, I do. Yeah. So it was this morning, the residents are in lectures on part of Friday mornings. And so I had clinic this morning and I went to clinic and my my first two patients were like, where's the four other people who are usually with you? <laughs> I was like, oh, no, yeah, it's just, sorry, you just get me. <laughs> I'm curious. I want to spend a little time there because I don't have residents or medical students in my practice. It's just me running around. What is the what is the best part of it? What is the part that for you, when you enter the room, there's four other people with you, you get to work with a patient, talk about their spasticity, do some injections, you know, <laughs> walk the resident through how to do it, how to get the right access, get the right angle, all that stuff. What is the best part of having, what am I missing out on? Having spent 16 years as an attending with no residents, medical students, fellows, what's the best part? Seeing the light bulb go off. Like Uh, just them making connections in their brain from what they learn from their all, you know, everything that they have so much more that they have to learn now compared to when we went through this all and them getting to put hands on patients and, you know, make those connections and, you know, grasp concepts and then, you know, it clicks and they're, they get it and they understand it. And then the other thing in PM&R is 
The best thing is some of the continuity of it. Maybe someone won't get it in just a short rotation, but the residents do because they may see someone on the inpatient setting and then they go to clinic a few months mm-hmm. later and that patient shows up in my clinic and they're like, whoa, they couldn't walk and now they're walking. And, you know, it's just um, it's part of what makes the field really gratifying. Can you tell? when that light bulb moment happens, I mean, you've been in attending for a while. Can you tell her even, can you anticipate it? Can you like, Oh, this person, they're about to get it. This is going to be good. Yeah, you can tell. And then yeah. sometimes they'll come to you and they'll, they'll tell you. So, or like, they'll be, That's really awesome. give you great food feedback on it. Or Yeah. I had a resident That's... recently who sent me, he's like, when a few years ago, I wrote this case report and then I was in the prosthetics clinic and saw this, child come back with their prosthetic and it was amazing because i'd seen them when they were twins with you know amniotic i don't whatever twin problems that they had and now they're you know kids who are pressed and it was just so gratifying for him to see that how do you create a space then when you're teaching and mentoring for them to know without you asking you have to come back and tell me when these things are happening, that when you have these eureka moments, I really want to know, I really want you to tell me so that I can see it in your face and, and enjoy it with you as well. So sometimes it's not always like, okay, tell me when, you know, you come back with it. But, um, but sometimes one thing about do, being able to do procedures and allowing learners to do procedures too, is they just, they love hands-on things. They love procedures now. So that's also just, you know, brings them a lot of joy. And now we're using a lot of ultrasound guidance. So they're seeing it happen. Mm-hmm. You know, patients are seeing it happen. Like, oh, wow, look at the medication, look at the needle and the medication filling up in that exact muscle we wanted to put it into. This is great. You know, that's so that instant of, feedback. That's super that cool. That instant. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And you're sharing it with the patient, right? They're watching the same ultrasound screen that you are probably. Yeah, exactly. Right. And you can always make a good joke about, do you want to know the sex of your baby kind of thing? And uh, (laughs) I'm never never looking at as I'm injecting into their biceps. Right. Right. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. That's really fun. And I I always reflect, I mean, we all, you know, we, we we can't travel all of the roads, but that's a big one that I did not travel. So I love hearing those sorts of stories about what you get because it's probably that's like every day right it probably happens several times a day or at least several times a week for you yeah and there's a lot of internal medicine actually that you have to do especially the ones doing inpatient rehab because sure. the patients have medical comorbidities and so sometimes you have to manage that or or in me taking care of patients with long covid i have to know a lot of medicine to take care of long covid patients sure Sure. How, so that brings us to right a place where you have certainly emerged as a critical voice and, a, and an international expert. How much of your time and your professional capacity is being kind of subsumed by long COVID and people being referred to you for what is thought to be a manifestation of long COVID syndrome? Tons, so much, like probably maybe half of my practice at this point. Half? Yes. That is shocking. I did not expect With three to, to that. four month wait. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. Yeah. There, so, so you're, you're the chair of your department. You're obviously a part of strategic planning, acknowledging that this is not going to suddenly get better. What are the conversations being had to sort of meet this demand, to mitigate it, to educate so many more people to have some basic skills? I mean, this is, the, that is a staggering number. 
Yeah. So I try to do as many in grand rounds presentations as possible. I'm trying to just get education out there. We're trying to see, you know, who can we bring on, even if it's APPs, it can help kind of learn some of the, some of the, um, what's going on with long COVID so they can help with the load as well. And just trying to, even in my own institution, most recently, I reached out to the chairs of, you know, our family medicine, our primary care center, our internal medicine and said, y'all are on the front lines and you're seeing this. How can I help the providers at the front lines be able to say, all right, let's start with this. Or let me give them some of the tools to start helping these patients. But it's the, the visits are almost an hour each time. So it's hard for a PCP to have an hour with the patient. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around this. That is, that is a massive, massive number. Do you feel like people understand it? I mean, I, I guess I'm sort of asking rhetorically because I'm a busy, active clinical physician. I'm on social media as much as anybody, and I'm shocked right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we... No one understands it. I was just before this on a call with for our NIH trial that we're a part of. And we're still kind of arguing, you know, the whole nation, the people involved in all these different centers. And we're still like, should we do this? Should we ask this? Should we get this? What do we do? You know, so we're all still trying to build the plane while we're flying it. And that's also in the space of people who are having symptoms who don't know what it is or going to see their physician or their you know provider and it not being recognized not by because it's anyone's fault just we're all still learning about long COVID and just how big and expansive it is right yeah we are and and it's so hard for some of these symptoms that they're not all quantifiable we as physicians we love just to have something to treat that's wrong that we know how we're going to treat exactly like yeah 100 percent. yeah like i'm having tachycardia okay get an echo you know, or whatever it might be that, you know, and the echo is normal. And then they're told, well, your echo is normal. You're fine. But they were never worked up for POTS. And a lot of times, a lot of them more often are having POTS. And that's not something we learn very much about in medical school or in our training. Postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, right? Yes. Uh-huh. Way to go. I got All right. Thank you. Uh, the the word, the 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 acronym SALAD is, is always daunting. I've been at this for a while. And I mean, it's just so easy for us to lose track of it. And then to have this thing where it's that much. How how are we going to unlock this? I mean, you're going to be one of the people that drives the that drives this ship. What would you say are your highest priorities for the rest of this year for us to, as you say, build the plane while we're flying it? I think these patients need treatments. I think we need a you know, try to figure out pathophysiology or parts of the pathophysiology so that we can do clinical trials for these patients right away. Just like we were so good in doing like the active one, two, three, four, five, six, you know, where we were getting patients things in the hospital, remdesivir, you know, everything that went through that pipeline. Um, now we need to do it for long COVID. Yeah. So that would be your first thing right now is, is creating therapeutic options. Yes. That sounds very reasonable. I'm going to have to just sit with that number that that it's now half of what was already, I would imagine, an overwhelmed practice in yeah. San Antonio uh, and just sort of grasp that and, and have you back on in like six months to better understand the progress that we're making. Are you getting asked to speak about it and educate about it from entities that you had not heard from before? 
Yes, for sure. I've been, of course, usual places, Grand Rounds, academic centers, but then also I've been asked different conferences, including one that's going to come that I'm doing in the next month that is even a legislative conference. And they're looking at the cares and the needs of workers. So workers comp patients. So it also is an issue with workers comp and people getting ill in the workplace and how did they get it there? Did they not? Did they cover them? Did they not? Um, You know, how do you make it safe in your workplace? What are the effects of having the impact of having your workers who now have long COVID and may be disabled? So lots of um, issues related to that. And then I got to testify at Congress last week, too. About long COVID. And it's disability. amazing. You're, the whole arc of your career seems like has been redefined somehow and what you're going to have to prioritize and be asked to do. I guess in some way, is it exciting? Is it thrilling? Is it daunting? What sort of emotions do you have as you see this reshaping happen right in front of you? It's exhausting. <laughs> mm, yeah. yeah, there's just so much work to be done. I'm one person and, you know, there's 35, 40, 50, maybe centers in the United States, but there's not enough for the number of people that we know have long COVID. It's just, yeah, it's a lot. Who would you like to see? And when I say who, what organizations, what individuals, what offices would you like to see get into the fight that are not currently that for either by omission or commission are not engaged around long COVID that need to be, if you had your choices and you could say you, you, and you Mm -hmm. hit your train, let's go. Who would that be? I mean, I still think that, you know, the white house, the president, the Congress could get, you know, have a special type of, you know, we need to make this a priority. Just like the president came out what last week and was like, we're going to cure cancer. Well, why aren't we going to finish you know, ending COVID and ending long COVID. So I I think also the other thing is drug companies or we have to think about, you know, novel therapeutics. I want them to be able to get out and, you know, start treating this start, whether it be antivirals, whether it be something related to the immune system, because we know it's, you know, there's immune dysfunction, whether, you know, lots of things. I can see just in having this conversation, right? We have the advantage of being on video together, even though this is going to be audio only. You know, I've done enough interviews to get a sense of kind of people's affect. I can see how much this is weighing on you. I can see that these questions that I'm asking you, you're asking yourself hour after hour, day after day, and it's a very uncertain future. How does that leave you at the end of the day, at the end of the week, just sort of sitting in that space? Yeah. Um, it's a mixed emotions. Like, uh, you know, there's some like feeling of accomplishment, but also of, is it enough? Did I do enough? Are we doing enough? And always like Friday, I'm like, Oh, I need a three day vacation, three day weekend, but there's not. Cause then the Saturday I'm on the computer, I'm working, I'm running, I am, you know, <laughs> no rest for the weary at all. And no end in sight. No, no, <laughs> no. Well, no. I'm glad that you have your running. 
as one thing that keeps you interested. And I also do want to just take a moment and discuss what you have on your lanyard that you're wearing around your neck. Yeah. Because I know that this is of great importance to you. It's a wonderful organization. I've had the opportunity to work with them before through Explore the Space. Tell us a little bit about hashtag Latinas in medicine. Right. So this was a lanyard that I got online maybe a year or so ago. You know, being involved with the Latinas in medicine community that's pretty big on, on Twitter as well. And when, once they were giving out lanyards and I was like, I want to win one. So, you know, I had some a lanyard sent to me. I got an extra one sent to be able to give to a mentee. And so it's something, of course, I'm very passionate about. And so I wear my lanyard with pride. What is the role that this sort of forward-facing engagement, advocacy, awareness, what role does this have for you in your career as you're doing all of this hard work, as you are running a department, as you're facing right the wave after wave of long COVID, when you kind of have that lanyard on and it's part of your work, it's on your Twitter profile, how, what is the importance of that for you? So it's definitely very important. I always just, it's part of my identity, something that I will go back to. When you look at the numbers, the numbers are so small. So Latinas are about 2.5% of all physicians. So really small numbers. So when I you know, was growing up, there was no, even though I grew up in a part of the country where it's 90% Hispanic, there is no women Latina women physicians where I lived that I got to grow up seeing. And so, um, you know, it's important for me to be out there so that I, other people can see me, can see what I do and, you know, hopefully aspire and know that they can do the same. So it's something it's uh, very passionate about. Do you see the opportunities to connect within the community as you're doing your work with people who have long COVID or brain injuries or the full scope of your practice, does it come up a lot? Do people say to you, I'm glad to see that lanyard. I'm glad that you're here. I haven't, I haven't had a physician like you before. How often does that come up for you? It depends. There's definitely, I think, since I can speak Spanish as well, and if there's patients here that only speak Spanish, they really appreciate having a physician that speaks their language and can talk to them. Um, and then, but some patients are still, because they're used to just seeing a certain thing and it's not always a Latina physician. So sometimes it's even hard for patients who are Hispanic to accept that they have a Latina physician coming in, you know, or they'll want to just call me by my first name um, because that's what, or, you know, that's what they think the relationship is or not understanding fully that women, Hispanic women can be physicians too, but it's, uh, hopefully educating people because it's just not what they're used to seeing. That is really interesting. When you follow people longitudinally where the relationship maybe starts in that place of they don't see and recognize and understand that that is something that happens, right? That there can be Latina physicians. Does that change over time? Do you see as you see them, you know, every couple of months or every couple of weeks that this gets different and better or does yeah. it not really evolve over time? Sometimes it does. Cause at the beginning they might question me a little bit more too. Like, uh -huh. like, Oh, what do you say? You think this? Well, my other doctor used to say this. And then after, you know, build a relationship with time, then it's like, okay, great. We get along fine. But first it's a little like, Hmm. Who does this lady think she is? <laughs> wow. Like, yeah. 
That's really interesting. And then, and for a place for them where their expectations are really high and probably their anxieties are, something, something bad has happened to them and they're, they're there for your help. Uh, they want, they want the very best, obviously, just like anybody else would. Right. And they get it because they're seeing you. Yeah. Not that that's just what, what everyone is like. I, sometimes there's that experience sure. and sometimes see where they're just like, Oh, we're so, they're so happy. And they're so happy to see someone like me and, you know, it reminds them of their own children. And so there's both ends of the spectrum. You have a remarkable career already. And it's going to be fascinating because, you know, you and I are in the same place. We were in the same medical school right around the same time. Like we're mid career. We're not done yet. We're going to do a lot of good work, hopefully for a long time. Do you, do you reflect on all of this amazing sort of heterogeneity within your career and, and, and the skill set that you've had to develop? Or is it just, there's been too much, especially these last couple of years to have time to even look at that. And it's just one foot in front of the other. No, sometimes I drive into my work and it's a little surreal, like, oh, wow, I get to be the chair of a department. Like, this is, (laughs) wow, they let me be the chair of the department here. (laughs) They didn't let you, you earned it. And there's a difference. I I earned this. You earned it for sure. Absolutely. That is, that is wonderful. I love it. Uh, you're you're an amazing person to get to connect with, and I'm really glad that we got to do this. It's it's been overdue, and I'm glad that you're one of my oldest med Twitter pals. How do people find you? The same way that you and I connected, right? We connected through Twitter. How do people find you on social media? How do they how do they follow the work that you're doing? How do they learn about uh, hashtag Latinas in medicine? Right. So uh, my Twitter handle is at mv gutierrez md. And no one ever knows how to spell Gutierrez, G-U-T-I-E-R-R-E-Z. And then I'm also on Instagram, which I don't have the same name. You know, you're supposed to have the same ones going across. I don't all either. The I know. Yeah. It's fine. So yeah. I'm Monica V. Gutierrez on uh, on Instagram, which is a lot more probably running pictures and such there. <laughs> and uh, those are, you know, you can follow the hashtag Latinas in Medicine and be able to, you know, interact and learn from all the amazing Latinas in, on med Twitter. And uh, yeah, those are kind of my hotspots. And the other thing I do a lot of now is a hashtag long COVID. So of course, advocating for those patients and uh, trying to disseminate information. That's wonderful. Those are great places to follow. We'll have links to all of that in the show notes as well. Monica, this was a blast. I'm so glad that we finally got to do this. Thanks for everything that you're doing. I'll see you on Twitter, I'm sure, this weekend. Have a great run when next you get to get out there with your buddies. And uh, this was a blast. I know. Thank you for having me so much. I feel, again, like I said, I really feel honored to be on Explore the Space. I do listen to it. It wasn't like only once. (laughs) Uh, It's all good. You listen to it as much or as little as you like. But people are going to listen to this one with you on it, and they're going to love it. This was amazing. Thank you. Thanks. My thanks once again to Monica for joining us on this episode of Explore the Space podcast. It was an absolute treat to have her on. Definitely follow her on Twitter so you can see all the great things that she's up to and follow the the journey that we're really all on as a, as a nation and as a, as a community in dealing with long COVID. She is right out at the sharp edge and she is not only helping us develop the right approaches and therapeutics, but she's training the next generation of people who are going to be taking care of uh, all of those affected with long COVID as we move forward. Thank you also to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode. Learn more about Creighton's Executive MBA and Executive Fellowship programs at www.creighton.edu forward slash C-H-E-E. Definitely check out 
the Archive of Explore the Space podcast, and subscribe wherever you like to download your podcasts. The Archive is at www.explorethespaceshow.com. And just stick a forward slash merch on that and you will find the Explore the Space merchandise. Definitely check that out as well. You can hit me on Twitter at ETS Show, Instagram at Explore the Space Show. And please feel free to email me, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. We will be back soon with more great content. Until then, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.